The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities, or NASCA, is providing this podcast as a service to its members, associate members, and others. But it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of NASCA policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the NASCA Association. Views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the NASCA podcast host are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the view of NASCA or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our office at nasca.org. Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances. Leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. Thank everyone for joining us. I'm Alan McGill, and I have with us today Paul Dunford. Paul, did I pronounce that correctly? Absolutely. All right. So Paul is the co-founder and VP of Knowledge for Green Check Verified. Paul, why don't you explain to the folks a little bit about your background uh, and what Green Check Verified is? Sure. I think like most people in cannabis, I have an eclectic background. It's one of the great questions to ask people in cannabis is, how did you get here? Because nobody went to college for cannabis. I come from a background both of teaching and also I worked in healthcare for several years. So dealing with you know, highly regulated industry, a lot of reporting, you know, a lot of use of data and a lot of privacy. When it was time to sort of try the next thing, my partner and I were looking for something that was an interesting puzzle that could potentially be solved by technology. And he was approached by someone who thought it would be a good idea to make a cannabis point of sale system. We realized that the problem wasn't the point of sale systems. It was a banking problem. So cannabis needed to find a way to bank and financial institutions due to marijuana status as a controlled substance were keeping cannabis at arm's length. So what you're talking about is the fact that since marijuana is still federally regulated, as opposed to some states, especially uh, several years ago, they had an issue with how they were going to conduct sales in particular in finance and banking. Is that right? Yes. So the thing about financial institutions, and I'll just say financial institutions because banks and credit unions are slightly different, they are still regulated by federal agencies. There are some state-chartered financial institutions, but they still are often FDIC insured or insured by the National Credit Union Association. So regardless of your kind of charter, you always have some kind of federal oversight. And so, again, due to marijuana status as a controlled substance, financial institutions, even in states like California that have had decades-long huge cannabis programs that have become very mature, they still didn't want to take on the risk of attracting unwanted attention from their federal regulators. 
What we do is we work with financial institutions to build programs that can meet the regulatory obligations they have to demonstrate to their regulators that they're not facilitating money laundering, essentially. So Green Check Verified isn't a bank. That's no. company is not a bank. It's a sort of a conduit between the banks and the industry itself. Yes. That big challenge was financial institutions didn't know how to demonstrate that they were only working with legal businesses. And so examiners would come in from these federal agencies and say, prove to me that this is not you know, illicit funds. Prove to me that this is legal in the state. And so we basically have two tracks. We have a track where we do consulting services to help financial institutions build their programs. And then once they build a program, we also have software that they use where, like you said, we are the conduit between the cannabis business and the financial institution. We take transaction data from a cannabis business. We run it up against the rules of the state to make sure that this transaction seems to comport with the rules of the state. And then we deliver that information to the financial institution where they can decide whether this is a transaction they want to accept or not. So in the early days, how were the banks dealing with this when it was first legalized by a state? You can pick any state. You know, was Colorado, Washington, and California were the first? Would that be right? Or was Oregon in there too? Uh, California was the first in 96. And then you had sort of that trio of Washington, Oregon, and Colorado were the next bump that we saw. So how were they dealing with, with the banking back then? Well, honestly, it was one of two ways. One was that they went to their financial institutions and did not make it clear that they were in cannabis. Every every now and then a financial institution would notice, hey, wait, these are interesting transactions. Let me have a look at these. They would find them and then they would do what we call de-risk them. De-risking just means like kick them out of the financial institution. So it was this game that cannabis businesses would play where they would get an account at a bank and just do as much as they could until they were found out and kicked out. And then they had to find another one. You would talk to folks that were cannabis operators who've had you know, six, seven bank accounts for their business over the course of a couple of years. Also, that meant that there was just a lot of cash. Like- well, when they're dealing with cash or any transaction that's over $10,000, and I'm assuming that that was a relatively low and easy number for them to uh, go to a bank with. So that would generate the SARS or the suspicious activity report. So how were they dealing with that? Were they just making sure they were when they walked in or what were they doing? The uh, financial institutions are very wise to that kind of tactic, right? You know, yes, a currency transaction report won't be generated if it's $9,999, but the compliance department is looking for those. The compliance department is looking for, it was two transactions of $5,000. So you couldn't even really play that game. If it was a cash business, it kept cash out of the financial system. And there's an incredible cost to cash. So if they wanted to pay a utility bill, they went to the grocery store and they bought a bunch of money orders. And that's how they paid them. If they wanted to pay their taxes, there are stories of literally walking in with bags of cash and handing it over and saying, yep, here's my money. Well, that would be a and a huge time-consuming burden too. And not something that probably the last generation or maybe two is used to, you know, when I was growing up, that was 
the way you did a lot of things, not because you were trying to hide anything, just because we didn't have electronic banking and those sort of things. Yeah. So it wasn't a big deal for us. But I think now businesses are so adept to going to some sort of electronic payment, that would be a very cumbersome way to do it. The world is not set up for cash anymore. So it's very expensive. It's very difficult to handle. And it is inherently a security risk. You know, if there's a dispensary, then criminals know, well, there's a big chance that there's a vault with tens of thousands of dollars there. And we often see that when criminals target cannabis businesses, they're not always taking product because product is easy to find. They're taking the cash and leaving the product behind. They're putting cash in warehouses, like in Breaking Bad. I went to a dispensary once on a research trip, and they had a vault they had literally trucked over from a bank that went under. And it was like Scrooge McDuck's vault. It was literally bags of nickels and dimes and stacks of money. Like I felt like I was in a movie, but that's their reality if they don't have access to a financial institution. And of course, they're probably hiring ex-law enforcement or ex-military to guard. Yeah. A lot of the early transport companies were former law enforcement, uh, former DEA agents, former military personnel to guard the cash, transport the cash, all of that. So what's going on with the money now? So how has it changed from those times? How has it progressed? Well, now we have more financial institutions that are willing to bank cannabis knowingly and openly. And so you do have the ability to initiate some electronic transactions through what's called the ACH network. So, you know, if you make ACH network, so it stands for the account clearing house network. So it's kind of a semi-private company that provides the network where transactions between parties are handled. So if I was to make an electronic payment to you through my bank, if I wasn't doing like a Visa or a MasterCard thing and I was in the bank and just said, I want to sell, send Alan $200, that would be facilitated over the ACH network. And the ACH network, unlike Visa, MasterCard, Discover, Amex, they don't prohibit the use of their networks for cannabis transactions. So you do have that ability if you have a financial institution, have access to that network to pay your bills. There are some apps that people can use where, you know, as a consumer or a patient, you can do an electronic payment with a cannabis business over the ACH network. Well, speaking of the credit cards, because that's interesting, I was going to ask you about that and you did sort of answer it, but just going back to it, the credit card companies, how long did it take them to come on board or are they not on board? In the US, they're not. None of the four major credit card companies will knowingly facilitate cannabis transactions. So if I walk into a place in Colorado Springs and want to purchase you know, some cannabis and I want to use my American Express, they're not going to be able to process it? Correct. And if they do, it means that they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. You know, it might be one of those like, hey, you have a service for two weeks and then it disappears. That happens in cannabis because electronic. What, what do you mean? So you have the major networks. And then you have these operators that are actually like the access point. If I was to work with MasterCard, I would not necessarily do my transactions directly with MasterCard. I would do my transactions through what's called an independent service operator or an ISO. That might be Paul's credit card clearing company. So I would have a relationship with Paul's credit card clearing company, and they would be the ones that route transactions over the Visa, Amex, MasterCard network. 
In other words, for example, using, you know, your, you know, your Paul's credit card clearinghouse, they would do business with a whole, with a bunch of other industries mm-hmm. so they could hide the cannabis part in the yep. fold. Not, I mean, I'm not saying necessarily hide it, hide it, but it wouldn't become the focus. They have other stuff as well. Yeah. It's, it's classic obscuring of funds. We had a case a couple of years ago where there was a, a delivery company in California that was accepting credit card transactions. And it turned out it's because they were coding them as like purchases at pet shops or pool supplies. And so the financial institution got wise to it and they said, no, you can't do this anymore. So they lost their ability to process credit card transactions. They got kicked out of their you know, ISO relationship and the folks at the top got sued. And I don't know how it really resolved at the end, but it, that is a crime, miscoding transactions, saying it was, I'm buying pet food as opposed to I'm buying marijuana. How does somebody then, if they, you know, because we're exceedingly less of a cash society, mm-hmm. how does someone walk into a cannabis store and make a purchase? Do they have, do they then go to a bank that is cannabis friendly and get a debit card from that bank? Is that how it would work? So there's two ways that are pretty reliable to do payments in cannabis businesses. One is super low tech. They almost always have an ATM in the lobby so that you can go and you can bring out cash. There is an extension of the ATM concept called a cashless ATM, where it looks like you're making a credit card payment, but you have to use a debit card and enter your PIN. By doing that, it can be routed over a payment network that's specific to ATMs. Now, most of those networks are owned by Discover and Visa and MasterCard. There are still a couple independent ones that have not prohibited explicitly the use of their networks for cannabis payments. If you see someone use a card at a dispensary at the point of purchase, usually it is a debit card, they enter the PIN, the transaction gets routed over an ATM network as opposed to one of the credit card owned ATM networks. So what do the feds say about this? Do they take any action on this? I mean, no, you know, that's the thing about the, the federal government is that they know this is happening. If you ask them explicitly, hey, can I do anything related to marijuana? They'll say no. But the reality is behind the scenes, it's one of those don't ask, don't tell things, you know, don't poke the bear. Federal Reserve, for instance, that is where at the end of the day, all cash is going to go. And so if you're a financial institution, you're collecting cash from a cannabis business, it has to go to the Federal Reserve. Now, if we think about the federal government as a monolithic entity that is doing everything it can to stifle cannabis activity, then the Federal Reserve should be rejecting those dollars. But having spoken to folks in the Federal Reserve, everybody knows it's happening. Just don't force them to make a comment about it. You know, don't force them to say yes or no, because they're bound to say no. But the reality is they'll accept it. It's the same thing with the IRS. The IRS collects tax money on state legal cannabis businesses. You would think as a federal agency, they wouldn't be accepting those dollars, but not only do they accept them, they will actually go after you if they discover that you have not been paying your taxes the way that you should. It reminds me a little bit of law enforcement, how they react to cannabis, especially lately, you know, over the last several years. It's still illegal on the books, like in Pennsylvania, for example, where I'm from, it's still illegal here. Although we do have medical marijuana, but 
if someone's caught with a small amount, chances are police are probably not going to file a charge. But yeah. if it's in connection, but if you ask them, it's still illegal and you could still be arrested for it. Ryan's type of thing. How does FinCEN deal with this? So FinCEN is our cops. So FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, they're part of the Department of Treasury. And they're the ones that are responsible for making sure that the bad money stays out of the financial system. In 2014, FinCEN issued guidance prompted by questions from financial institutions that were saying, hey, I'm in a state that has a legal program. There are businesses that are four or five years old that are coming to me that they're stable, reliable businesses, and they want a bank account, and I don't know what to tell them. What should I say? And so once that critical mass of questions happened, FinCEN released guidance in 2014 that laid out a method by which a financial institution could meet its regulatory obligations when banking marijuana. It's another one of those things where FinCEN doesn't say, yes, do it, but they actually include a line, which I think is as close as a federal agency could possibly come, where they say, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, this guidance should enhance the availability, availability of services for and the financial transparency of cannabis businesses. Because if you think about it, FinCEN has a vested interest here. They would love to be able to differentiate state legal marijuana activity from like cartel activity. If you don't have a way of knowing who is a state legal cannabis business who has a you know regular banking relationship, then everybody seems to be the exact same level of threat. But if they know the financial institutions that are doing this, if they know the businesses that are doing this, then they can focus their attention on where it needs to go, as opposed to seeing everybody as equally threatening in terms of facilitating cartel activity. So why did the cannabis industry, I mean, we, you know, we talk about cash and cash is still, I think, king, but even though we're cashless, wouldn't they just have been easier to just deal with? Why would they, why did they want to start going to a bank? There's incredibly, incredible security concerns around cash. Uh, so even if you have it in a warehouse somewhere, uh, someone will find out about it and you can't really track cash. So it's, it's a great thing to steal. If you steal a bunch of cash that is not in a financial institution where they're not tracking it, where there's not, you know, die packs in the bags that will explode. Once you got the cash, you can do whatever you want with it. They want to be in financial institutions, one for the security of it. I want a place to put my cash. They also eventually want to have access to debit cards so that these businesses can make non-cannabis purchases like copier paper or pizza. Those aren't explicitly prohibited by any of the card networks. Uh, It truly is the marijuana-specific activity. They ultimately want to have access to lending because lending isn't really available to this industry. In many ways, this industry is dominated by folks that have access to private capital, uh, a lot of friends and family, having access to banking would help level the playing field a little bit by helping everybody get access to funding. So there's a lot of reasons why they want to be in the financial system. Security, safety, ease, those are all big reasons. Has any of that eased up? I assume it has over the decade or so. It has. So we've been around for five going on six years. And just seeing the difference over the last couple of years of how interested financial institutions are, how wary they are, their concerns, a lot of those have been lessening. There used to be, for instance, at the beginning, this fear of, 
if people find out we're the weed bank, they're going to leave us. Well, the reality is Americans don't have that same negative feeling about cannabis that they had 10, 20, 30 years ago. That fear is going away. The fear of not knowing whether these are legal transactions or not is going away because we have the ability to provide them with a lot of information about it. And we also now see these programs have gone through multiple exam cycles and they're not being told that they can't bank cannabis. And so a lot of that fear on the side of the FIs is going away and the regulators are now becoming really actively involved in helping these programs operate in a compliant manner, as opposed to saying, don't talk about it. It's federally prohibited. So just in the last five years, we've seen a real opening and acceptance of it in banking and in banking regulation. So we talked uh, about credit cards and debit cards and ATMs. Mm -hmm. What about some of the online type transactions like PayPal or Zelle or how do they factor into this? Do they allow transactions? Nope. They prohibit them as well. They explicitly prohibit them. Now, the reality is if you look at the illicit market, how it operates, it is largely PayPal and Venmo. But it's a little bit ironic, isn't it? I know. (laughs) But if you're going to be honest and say, hey, I'm a cannabis business, they say no. So PayPal and Venmo and the other ones are technically off the books. And I've never seen a dispensary that has ever offered like PayPal or Venmo as a method of payment. Is there a difference between what's happening in the United States and other countries? Yeah. So a good example would be Canada. When Canada legalized federally, then Visa, MasterCard, and Amex started accepting their networks for use for cannabis purchases. If you're in the Colorado Springs example, you can't use your Amex to purchase marijuana. If you're in Quebec, you can use your Amex to purchase marijuana, and it's not violative in any way. That's one big difference we see in Canada. We are starting to see a lot of medical legalization in Europe. It's usually pretty small and controlled, but we're starting to see for the first time in a while this movement towards adult use legalization. I say adult use, kind of commonly called recreational. The industry does not like the term recreational. I think it's pretty obvious why. It sounds irresponsible, and they are very emphatic that it's a responsible industry. So that's why I say adult use. So you have adult use legalized in Malta now, in Germany, in Portugal, it's been decriminalized. And in Spain, adult has been decriminalized and they're moving towards legalization. So we used to have this feeling that Europe was this real bastion of conservatism of no, never. And we do have some holdouts like the UK takes a very hard line. France takes a pretty hard line, but we're starting to see that soften in Europe. I kind of look at Europe like the United States maybe 20 years ago in terms of moving towards more open legalization. So I'm assuming that what everybody's waiting for, such as the credit card companies and the banks, really is for the feds to declassify it, a scheduled drug. Based on what you're you're telling me, then it sounds like the financial institutions as well as the credit card companies are waiting for the United States to reschedule it. Is that right? There are a couple of things they're waiting for. They're either waiting for full federal legalization, because then there would be no issues whatsoever. They may be waiting for full descheduling, where it would still be a controlled substance in certain areas, potentially. But 
that would give them a structure they could use in order to, you know, help run their compliance programs. They wouldn't be dealing with the fact that, you know, it's a schedule one. There are some folks that advocate for rescheduling. So there is a particularly sticky part of the tax code called Section 280E, which cripples the industry by saying that you cannot take any small business deductions for cannabis-related activity. So their effective tax rate is about 70%. And the reason that affects marijuana is because that section of the tax code is only for Schedule 1 and 2 controlled substances. So if it got rescheduled or descheduled, that would take a lot of that financial concern out of it. We also have a piece of legislation that's been kicking around for a couple of years now called the Safe Banking Act that would not in any way affect the legal status of marijuana in the country, but it would provide a, what we would call like a safe harbor to financial institutions where federal agencies could not take action against your financial institution solely because you work with state legal marijuana businesses. So those are, those are the, the pieces out there. There's legalization, descheduling, rescheduling, or the Safe Banking Act. I'm curious about the bank's as well, just to get a feel, do they take advantage of the industry itself, knowing that they're sort of on the cusp and charge them higher fees? Do they do that? That absolutely used to be the case. So you may have heard stories 10, 15 years ago of California dispensary would have to pay $3,000, $5,000 a month to have a marijuana account. Now, it wasn't just pure profiteering. Financial institutions do have to do a lot of work to make sure that they are not facilitating, you know, outright money laundering. So there is work involved, but $3,000, $5,000, I would say that perhaps that was a bit much. Now that you see more financial institutions involved, we're actually starting to see market pressures put that down. And I don't know that I've seen for a direct licensed marijuana touching business that presents the highest risk. I don't know that I've seen a financial institution charge more than $1,000 a month. And some are, by market pressures, going down $750, $500, even less. Now that more financial institutions are in the game, they have to be competitive and fees are a big part of that. I would assume that a lot of that has to do with the concept that there's a lot of money in marijuana. And you know, even as, and, and I'm just, I guess my question is going to go to having you address that because in law enforcement, I know that one of the things that we always talked about was we didn't usually do a lot of big weed cases. That wasn't our focus, you know, for years, we were looking at the harder drugs such as heroin and cocaine, but there was always the notion going around law enforcement circles that there was big money in weed. So if you did a big weed case, your chances of getting a seizure of a lot of cash were greater. Given that thought. I'm just wondering if that translated to the banks as well and thinking that this is a super lucrative business. And is that the case or is it just like any other business? It really is just like any other business. So any financial institution that gets into this industry thinking it will be the key to unfettered growth, they will quickly disabuse themselves of this notion. There are a lot of businesses, they're just operating like normal businesses but they are highly, highly taxed. You know, they're, they have to retain a lot of cash. They're not putting it necessarily in the financial institution. And the financial institutions don't make a lot of money off of depository accounts. What they make money off of is lending. And lending is still something that financial institutions are struggling to, I don't know how to put it, wrap their heads around. It's 
the problem with lending is that there's no pre-existing credit risk models. They have to sort of start from scratch and say, what are the kind of businesses that I'm willing to take the chance on that I will actually get these dollars back? Banking cannabis is not super, super lucrative, uh, particularly now that there is market pressures on them as well. We've seen prices of marijuana flower drop tens of dollars over the last couple of years just because states are getting glutted with product. And I would say in terms of law enforcement seizures of large amounts of cash, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a lot of money in marijuana. It just meant that because they couldn't put the cash in financial institutions, there just happened to be a lot of cash. But $100,000 in cash seems impressive. $100,000 in your bank account as a business is not necessarily terribly impressive. (laughs) Sure. Uh, I was thinking more along the lines of when most of the time that it's just how law enforcement viewed it in only in this sense that whenever we did raids of high volumes of cocaine or heroin or otherwise, cash seizures weren't always as lucrative as they were with marijuana, but it was pretty widely known that if you tagged on to a a large scale marijuana dealer, you were probably going to have large amounts of cash handy. So it was Mm -hmm. just different. And I was just trying to translate that into if banks are, because I think everybody else thinks that that same way as well, not just law enforcement, but for example, that's the argument from a lot of states that we're going to be able to finance our schools and we're going to have all this tax revenue coming in. And has that really materialized for those states? Does work for the states because all the states tax cannabis very heavily. So there's usually the state local sales tax. There is a cannabis tax on top of that. There's often a local cannabis tax on top of that. And then you can have sometimes taxes on, like in the state of Connecticut, there's an extra tax on the THC percentage of the product you're purchasing. One of the things that we are aware of in California is that even though California has had a legal cannabis industry for decades now, it is estimated that the illicit market is still larger than the legal one. And part of the reason is that based on where you are, you can have tax rates in California as high as 34%. How are you going to fault a consumer for saying, well, I could pay X plus 34% at the legal place, but down the road, there's the illicit place. I can save a bunch of money. I'm going to go there. Taxation does fill the coffers of states, but it also has kind of a perverse effect sometimes of keeping the illicit industry in business because when you tax heavily, price-conscious consumers will stay in the illicit market. Is there a difference between the, I mean, you mentioned the credit unions and the banks being two different types of financial institutions. Is there a difference in how they handle the cannabis industry of themselves or they operate the same way? So the, the differences between them are relatively small in terms of the kind of discussion we're having, but The credit unions, their regulator, NCUA, the National Credit Union Association, they have actually been pretty vocal in saying, as long as you follow the rules that are out there, we're not going to take any negative action against you because you're banking marijuana. We've not heard that from the banking regulators like the OCC, the Fed, the FDIC, you know, any of the others. So the credit union regulator is publicly more accommodating of cannabis banking. So I think that's one of the the big sort of tonal differences. Is there a difference with the tribal nations? Do they handle it differently? 
They do. So that is, that's a whole subject in and of itself because you have this dichotomy of being subject to federal law while at the same time ostensibly being a sovereign nation. So we have a piece of guidance called the Wilkinson Memo that was issued. And the title is something like marijuana business in Indian country, something like that. An antiquated phrase because it's a federal government agency. And they say, well, these are sovereign nations. So, you know, we'll respect what they do. But in the same memo, they say, essentially, unless we don't like it, and then we will go in and we will exert federal pressure. Financial institutions stay away from tribal cannabis because there's that extra layer of we don't really have insight into the tribal government. We don't really understand how active the federal government is going to be with these tribal programs. Tribal governments are creating a lot of programs. Not a lot of financial institutions are engaging with them because there's you know, sort of risks on top of risks on top of risks. Let me ask you this then. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was what does your company assist in the process within this environment? What do you guys do? We both work with financial institutions to build a program. Financial institutions have been told for years and years and years that they can't bank marijuana. And so when they make a decision to do so, they have literally no framework to build on. So we go in and we help them from the very basic of here's a policy, here's the kind of things to look for. So we help them build a program, what I would call a program on paper. And then we help them put their program into practice. And we do this through software that will help them do their FinCEN filing requirements, like currency transaction reports, suspicious activity reports. We have it as a platform that can help them onboard and do their deep customer due diligence, get a copy of their license, make sure it's active, their financials, who's involved, the beneficial ownership structure. And then we also, in the day-to-day, bring over information about transactions so that when the regulator comes in, they have all this information that they can show to demonstrate that they're only working with responsible state legal businesses from build the program on paper to implement the program in practice. How many states are involved in in this now? Depending on how you interpret the territories, there's about 39 states, including Puerto Rico, that have at least medical marijuana. Several of them have adult marijuana as well. We also have several of our territories, like the U.S. Virgin Islands, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, Guam, that have also legalized marijuana. I did a a quick little look at the census website. And if we look at just purely where people live, 80% of Americans live in a state or a territory that has legalized marijuana, at least medically. It's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I throw Texas in there as well because Texas pretends that it doesn't have a medical marijuana program, but they have a cannabis oil program, like a CBD program, but you can have THC in it up to 1%. Now, the federal distinction between hemp and marijuana is that hemp cannot have more than 0.3% THC in it. So if Texas has a program where you can legally purchase CBD with up to 1% of THC, regardless of what Texas says, Federally, they have a marijuana program. Texas will say no. I absolutely say Texas has medical marijuana. (laughs) That's pretty funny, actually. 
so do you have any anything else you want to add? Because I, I think I'm out of questions for now. Anything I didn't no. cover? No, I think that's great. You know, the thing that I would, I guess that I would add is in this industry, it's important to remember that financial institutions are getting into this not because they particularly want to advocate for cannabis, but because it's a state legal industry, you know, cash is an issue and there is the ability for them to make some money from lending. That was that was kind of a hard argument to make for a couple of years. This idea that if I bank marijuana, I'm a marijuana bank and getting folks to understand, no, it's just a business and there are rules and you can do this responsibly. That's kind of been the victory of the last couple of years. Well, thanks, Paul. I, I really appreciate you coming on the program today. I actually learned quite a bit about this that I didn't know. So it was a good chance for me to explore uh, how they were dealing with this. And I'm sure our audience will like it too. Thanks for being here. Great. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The Executive Board of NASCA and the Education Committee would like to thank you for joining us. The music for this podcast was provided by Joseph McDade. And if you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com. You can support Joe on Patreon. You can also find all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference, where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nasca.org. I hope you learned something and moved forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.